everyone. My name is Andrew, and it's a joy and a privilege to not only be worshiping with you here this Sunday, but also to be able to deliver God's word to you. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up with me to the book of Philippians. We're continuing our series, and today our passage comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. So again, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up with me there. Otherwise, it'll also be projected on the screens in front of you. But if I could kindly ask everyone, if you're able, uh, to please stand for the reading of God's word as an act of reverence and worship towards him. Let's give our undivided hearts and attentions as this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word for us. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the Father, he has served me with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and your minister to my need. For he has been longing for you and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, if you've been worshiping with us recently, we've been going through this series on the book of Philippians, and for the past couple of weeks, as we've been looking at chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul has been painting out and laying out for this, this, this grand and this beautiful vision of what it means, what it looks like to live a life of humility, what true selflessness and what true humility looks like in life. And what he did was, back in verses 1 through 4, Paul talked to us about the importance of humility, the importance of counting other people more importantly, more significantly than you see yourself. In verses 5 through 11, Paul illustrated to us the example of Jesus' own humility, how he was willing to even give up his life to the point of death on a cross, and how we as Christians have that same mind and that same heart. And then last week, as Pastor Will preached in verses 12 through 18, Paul drew out all the implications and the motivations for how and why we should live this way, live with humility and live with selflessness. And finally, as we come to the end of chapter 2, what Paul does in this last section of chapter 2 is he closes out this section by giving the Philippians and literally physically sending them two examples of this humility, living, breathing examples of this humility in the flesh in this guy named Timothy and this guy named Epaphroditus. In other words, what Paul does in this final section of chapter 2 is he writes to the Philippians and he says, I'm sending these two men to you, and the reason I'm sending them to you is to provide the church with two models, two examples of what it means to have humility and to have faith. In other words, brothers and sisters, the simple point of this message today is this message and this passage, it's all about role models, role models of the faith. And friends, as we study this final section of chapter two together, as we look at these two models of faith that the Apostle Paul portrays for the Philippians and for you and I here today, there are three things that I want us to consider that this passage shows us. First, we'll look at what Paul says is the importance of gospel values placing importance upon gospel values. And then secondly and thirdly, we'll consider and we'll look at the character of one, Timothy on the one hand, and then also Epaphroditus, 
And we're going to see and learn how we can grow in humility and selflessness through their character. So again, the three things that we'll look at here this morning is first, the importance of gospel values. And then secondly and thirdly, we'll look at Timothy and then Epaphroditus. Let's begin with the first point. Now, brothers and sisters, my guess is that for all of us here in this room, for most of us, we all have role models in some sense. In other words, we all have certain people, at least one individual that you kind of look up to in your life. You know, people that you imitate. This could be people that even in the slightest way you are influenced by. You try and inspire to be like this person, whether it's your parent. It could be a celebrity, a famous musician or famous athlete. Maybe it's someone who's in the same field or career as you. Maybe it's someone that you follow on social media. But brothers and sisters, the point is, no matter how young, no matter how old you are here today, everyone has a role model, whether we admit it or not, whether we see it that way or not. We all have people that we learn from, that we're influenced by, and that we try and model certain aspects of our life after. You know, it could be your golf swing, it could be your parenting style, financial strategy, even your fashion sense. By the way, I know this is true, especially for youth and college people, because when I first came to this church eight years ago, I never saw anyone with that mid-part permed haircut. But as soon as BTS blew up like five years ago, that's like the only haircut I see among the youth students. So I know this is true, at least for youth. But brothers and sisters, the point is, what Paul is saying is that just like you and I, we have role models in life. We have these people that we look up to, whether we admit it or not, and we try and model ourselves after in life. And what Paul is saying is that the same is true in our spiritual lives. In our spiritual lives, we also need people to model for us what it looks like to grow up in the faith, what it looks like to be a mature Christian. And so what Paul does in this passage is he says to the Philippian church, I'm sending Timothy, I'm sending Epaphroditus to you as these godly examples of faith. I want you to learn from them. I want you to look at their life and character and see how they live out everything that means that I've talked about in chapter two, to be humble and to be selfless. Now, brothers and sisters, before we actually look at these two men, we look at the character of Timothy and Epaphroditus, I want us to just consider for a moment, why these two, why these two men? Why in particular, out of all the people that Paul could have sent or chosen, why did he choose these two out of all people as models for the Philippians and models for you and I here today, role models? Because, brothers and sisters, here's the thing about role models. Who you and I look up to who you and I allow ourselves to be influenced by, it says a lot about our lives. In fact, I put it another way. If you want to know what you value as a person, if you want to know what someone else values, just think about and look at the people that that person looks up to or that you look up to. Think about the people that influence you or that person. See, for most of us here, brothers and sisters, if we're honest, we tend to look up to and we tend to follow people. We want to be modeled and influenced by people who are competent, who are successful. In other words, we, we look up to people whose lifestyle or whose giftedness, personality, charisma, resources are all things that you and I aspire to have ourselves in our own lives. For example, you know, people look up to Kobe Bryant. Why? Because they value hard work, grit, determination, competitiveness. When he was alive, when he started Apple, people worshipped and they idolized Steve Jobs because they value creativity, they value ambition, they value hard work and innovation. But brothers and sisters, let me ask you a question here today. Just take a moment, just think about if there are any people. Think about the people that you are influenced by in your own life. People that you look up to, that you model certain aspects of your life after. Think about all the people that you are influenced by. And then think about this. How many of those people are you motivated, are you influenced by not because of all their giftedness, 
not because of all these great talents or abilities or intelligence that they have, but simply because of their character. My guess probably is that for many of us, that list all of a sudden became pretty short. And friends, why is that? Now, David Brooks, he's a columnist for the New York Times. He once wrote this article entitled, uh, The Moral Bucket List. This is something that Pastor Will has referenced a few times before. But in this article, David Brooks talks about these two separate sets of values that exist in life. On the one hand, you have what's called resume virtues. And on the other hand, you have what are called eulogy virtues. And what he says in this article is that resume virtues are virtues that you bring to the marketplace. These are things like being organized, on top of your work, detail-oriented, driven and hardworking. These are values that generate profit and they generate results. And on the other hand, he says, there also just exists a separate set of virtues called eulogy virtues. And those are virtues or values that essentially are gonna be talked about at your funeral when you die. Whether you were a kind, whether you are a brave, honest, faithful, or humble person. In other words, these are qualities that generate warmth and generate life around you. And brothers and sisters, the, his point in his article, even as a non-Christian, he's a non-Christian, his point is that when you're at someone's funeral, or even when you're nearing your own death or the end of your own life, when you're in that position, everyone knows deep down what matters in the end are the eulogy virtues. What matters at the end are those, not your resume virtues, character not your giftedness or all your accomplishments. And yet he says the irony is that during our lifetimes, our culture places this inordinate amount of value, time, and emphasis upon only developing our resume virtues, oftentimes at the expense of eulogy virtues or the neglect of eulogy virtues. That's what our culture preaches to us, even though deep down we know that's not true. And brothers and sisters, I think this is why, and this describes and explains so much of why you and I look up to certain people and why we don't look up to others. Now, for example, if we're honest, you and I, we tend to look up to, we tend to emulate people who are competent and who are successful. But if we're really honest, sometimes we actually look down upon people that aren't those things, that lack those things. Is that not true? And if we're even more honest, you know, the sad reality is it's the opposite for eulogy virtues, isn't it? See, when someone has all these great gospel character traits and values, they're selfless, they're humble, and they're meek, it's very rarely the case that anyone's going to look up to that person unless that person has all these great resume virtues too. Isn't that the case? You know, what's even more sad is sometimes, even when someone lacks a lot of eulogy virtues, they lack character and godliness. And if we're honest, sometimes we tend to give those people a little bit more of a pass because they're so gifted, because they have so many resume virtues that they bring to the table. Now, I don't want to offend anyone here, but I think the classic example of this is Michael Jordan. <laughs> now, Michael Jordan is, in my humble opinion, he's the, he's the goat of basketball, the greatest of all time. Maybe that's disputed or not, but friends, whatever, whether you agree that, with that or not, I think most people would also agree that Michael Jordan is kind of a jerk. If you watch The Last Dance, he's kind of a jerk. He's arrogant. Maybe rightfully so, he's arrogant, but he's arrogant. He takes things way too personally, and he's way too competitive. I honestly don't think any of us would want to be close friends with someone who is like Michael Jordan. And yet so many people, they idolize him. They look up to him. Why? Because of all of his resume virtues, because of all his accomplishments. But brothers and sisters, the point is this. Paul's point is that in the gospel mindset, 
at the end of the day, character is what matters in the end. Eulogy virtues, not all your resume virtues. Virtues that generate not profit and results, but virtues that generate warmth and gospel life to the people around you. That's what's important. And brothers and sisters, that's actually why Paul commends these two specific people out of all the people that he could have chosen, Timothy and Epaphroditus, because if you just study the lives of these two men in the Bible, you'll realize that these two men are not the most gifted. They're not the most successful people. They're not the most intelligent or talented, but they're faithful. These two men are faithful. And it's their faithfulness, their humility, their Christ-likeness, and that's precisely why Paul commends them as models for the Philippians and for you and I to emulate our lives after. And so, brothers and sisters, before we move on to our second point, the simple question I want us to all wrestle with and think about this morning is this. Who do you look up to in your own life? Who are the people that right now, whether you consciously realize it or not, you look up to? You're influenced by, you model your life after, you aspire to be like these people, and then ask yourself the question, why am I looking up to these people? What value do I see in these people that I aspire to be like them? And friends, just think about for a moment, what does that communicate, what does that speak and say about your value and your heart and your life? This brings us to our second point. Let's look at the character of Timothy. Now, if you read verses 19 through 24 with me, here's essentially, it's a, long, it's a long passage here, but here's essentially a summary of what's going on in verses 19 through 24. In verses 19 through 24, this is essentially what's going on. If you remember just the context of the book of Philippians, Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians because he wants to visit Philippi. He wants to go in the flesh and visit and encourage this church. But the problem is Paul can't do that because he's in prison. And so what Paul does is he writes to the Philippians and he says, I'm planning to send Timothy to go to you as soon as I figure out the verdict of my trial, whether I'll be set free or not. And Timothy's going to go to you to encourage you and to minister to you until I myself can personally go visit you. That's what's going on here. So Timothy is sent by Paul. Now, brothers and sisters, many of us, when we read this passage, we might not give it a lot of thought. We might just imagine or think in our minds, okay, Timothy's just going to make this kind of daily commute from one city Philippi, or to Philippi from Rome. But brothers and sisters, what's so important to note here is that the journey from Rome to Philippi, it wasn't just a daily commute, just driving your car for one day. But Philippi to Rome, the distance is actually 800 miles. Just think about that for a moment, 800 miles. In other words, to put that in perspective, one way from Philippi to Rome is the equivalent of a round trip from here in Orange County all the way up to NorCal and San Francisco and then back down again. And keep in mind, they did not have planes. They did not have Tesla autopilot back then. So it was a rough, it was a tiring journey. And yet Timothy, he's willing to drop everything that he has and go on this journey that would probably take several weeks, maybe even up to a month. And brothers and sisters, the point is this. What Paul is telling the Philippians, and what he's telling you and I here today is that there's a lesson in selflessness that you and I can learn from Timothy here in this passage. You know, we may think when we read this passage that, you know, Timothy's selflessness to make this 800-mile trip from Rome to Philippi, it's this kind of extreme or this radical display of faith, something that's only reserved for people who are willing to become missionaries or people who are just the truly godly people in the church. But friends, what Paul is saying is that that same heart and that mindset that drove Timothy to display this selflessness, and I'm going to drop everything I have, make this 800-mile trip, 
That same mindset and heart, friends, that's the same mindset and heart that all of us as followers of Jesus are called to have. And so, friends, the question for us is, how and why was Timothy able to be so selfless here in this passage? How and why was he willing to uproot all his current life plans to go travel to this distant city just to minister to these other Christians? Well, friends, the answer is actually in verses 20 and 21. Read with me again verses 20 and 21. This is what Paul says. He says, For I have no one like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. In other, words, in other words, brothers and sisters, what Paul is saying in these verses is that there were plenty of other people that Paul hypothetically could have sent to go travel to Philippi. But see, the problem is, Paul says, is all those other people were a little bit too busy. They were a little bit too caught up in their own plans, their own goals, their own interests and desires. But what's so special about Timothy, Paul says, is that the reason that he sends him, sets him forth as a model of faith is that Timothy is not only the only one who's willing to go, Timothy's the only one that wants to go. Timothy, in other words, friends, he's the only one who's free enough from his own desires, his own goals, his own self-interest to genuinely care and make this trip. In other words, brothers and sisters, what set Timothy apart was that he wasn't just seeking his own interests in life, but he was seeking the interests, as Paul says, the interests and the desires of Jesus Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, what can we learn from Timothy and what is Paul really saying here? Now, see, I think a lot of times, especially when non-Christians think about or they view Christianity, a lot of times people think that Christianity is this stoic and this really cold religion because they think it's all about denial. Christianity is just all about denying yourself. You can't have any interests. It's all about killing your own desires and goals and plans for your life and not enjoying or pursuing anything in this life. That's what Christianity is about. But brothers and sisters, what we learn from Timothy's own life is that's actually the opposite. See, Christianity is not anti-desire. It's not about just killing all desire, not having any desire in life. Friends, Christianity at the end of the day, it's about finding and being given new and greater desires, greater interests and greater goals. Desires and goals and interests that are bigger than just yourself and your own life and then reorienting your life, your heart, your decisions around those new goals and those new desires. That's what Christianity is about. Angela Duckworth, she's a psychologist and an author. She wrote this book in 2016 entitled Grit. And in her book, her basic argument is that the most successful people in this world are those people who not only for long periods of time maintain the same passions, the same interests, the same desires and goals throughout their entire lifetime, but in her book, she writes, the most successful people in this world are those people who also order all their secondary goals and interests and all their tertiary goals and interests around that one core central desire or goal. And in her book, she gives this example from this Hall of Fame pitcher. I had no idea who this guy is. I don't follow MLB. But he was a Hall of Fame pitcher. He passed away a few years ago named Tom Seaver. And in this excerpt of her books, this is what Tom Seaver says. He says, pitching is what I love. Therefore, I will do anything for it. Pitching, it determines what I eat when I go to bed, what I do when I'm awake. It determines how I spend my life when I'm not pitching. If it means I have to come to Florida and I can't get tanned because I might get a sunburn that would keep me from throwing for a few days, then I never go shirtless in the sun. 
If it means I have to remind myself to pet dogs or throw logs in the fire with my left hand, then I do that too. If it means in the winter I eat cottage cheese instead of chocolate chip cookies in order to keep my weight down, then I eat cottage cheese. Brothers and sisters, the point is this. All of us in life, all of us here today in life, we have a primary goal or desire, don't we? Whether it's success, maybe it's romance, maybe it's your family or your kids, maybe it's school or your career or friendships, whatever it may be, all of us have a core desire or passion or goal in life, don't we? And isn't it true that in our lives, whether we realize it or not, we all build our lives around that one central desire or goal. All our other desires, all our other goals are shaped around that one thing. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have other goals or desires or that those things aren't important. But friends, all it means is that that one core desire that has the greatest gravitational pull in your life. Everything else in your life orbits around that one thing. And see, friends, what we see in this passage is that for Timothy, that core desire was, that Paul, as Paul puts in verse 21, it was the desires and the interests of Jesus Christ. That was Timothy's deepest and most central desire in his entire life, to pursue not just what he wanted in life, but to pursue the interests and the desires of Jesus himself, what Jesus wanted and wants. And brothers and sisters, for you and I here today, if we want to develop this level of selflessness that Timothy displays in this passage, well, friends, it begins first and foremost by looking at our desires. You know, my hope for all of us here today, and my prayer for all of us here today, is that the interests and the desires of Jesus, that they would exist and they would be somewhere on, if you just imagine this, this pie chart of our goals or interests that we have in our lives. It would exist somewhere, the desires and the interests of Jesus. But brothers and sisters, the only question and probably the most important question is, is that your primary goal? Is that your primary desire? Your primary goal or desire in life? Or is it a secondary or a tertiary one? What we see from Timothy's life is, friends, the answer to that question makes all the difference in whether your life will be selfless or whether it will be self-centered. Where the interests and the desires of Jesus exist in your life, is it your core primary goal or desire? Or friends, for myself included, have we pushed that off to the side? Has it become the crust of this pie chart? Or friends, is it at the center? And this brings us to our last point. Let's look at the character of Epaphroditus. You know, in the final verses of this passage, in verses 25 through 30, what Paul does is he entirely shifts gears here, and he starts talking about this guy named Epaphroditus and why he's sending him to Philippi as well. And just to summarize verses 25 through 30, here's essentially what's going on in these verses. Epaphroditus was actually a member of the Philippian church, and he was sent by the Philippian church to travel all the way to Rome in order to bring Paul the financial support that the church had raised for Paul while he's in prison. But secondarily, his other goal on this mission was to stay in Rome, to stay with Paul while he's being imprisoned, and to minister to him and to encourage him. But see, what happened on this journey, so in other words, Epaphroditus is going from Philippi to Rome, this 800-mile journey, what happened is he got really sick. You know, many, many commentators say he probably contracted malaria or bubonic plague, and whatever it was, what happens is the church, his church back in Philippi finds out about this. Oh, shoot, Epaphroditus got really sick. And they start to become really concerned because there's no email, there's no text. They can't figure out if he's alive or dead. And what happens is Epaphroditus himself, he starts to become really concerned, not just because he's sick and he might die, 
but because of how much the church is agonizing over him and worrying about him, and he can't tell them how he's doing. What essentially happens is, by God's grace, Epaphroditus recovers. He finally makes it to Rome, finally makes it to Paul. And what's so interesting is what Paul does when Epaphroditus finally arrives after all these weeks of travel, after all this illness and suffering is, Paul sends Epaphroditus straight back to Philippi. He sends him straight back in order so that the church could see Epaphroditus in the flesh and so that he himself can let them know that he's okay. You know, what's so interesting about this passage is, as Paul in this section, as he's describing all this to church, as he's writing this letter, what he does is he spends all this time praising and commending Epaphroditus for his sacrifice, his suffering for the gospel. If you look at verse 25, Paul calls Epaphroditus these five very honorific titles. In verse 25, Paul mentions that Epaphroditus is his brother, his fellow worker, his fellow soldier. And then he also calls him the Philippians' messenger. That's literally the word for their apostle and their minister to Paul's needs. These are all very intimate, very honorific terms and titles. And brothers and sisters, this is the point that we see in Epaphroditus. This is what we can learn from his life and his character. Friends, what we see in his life is that God does not always work in our successes. He doesn't always work in our accomplishments and the things that we succeed in in life. But friends, what we see in Epaphroditus' life is that God also works in our weakness. He works in our sacrifices. He works in our suffering. And sometimes he even works in our failures. Now, where and how do we see this in Epaphroditus? Well, brothers and sisters, if you just, for a moment, just think about this situation. Epaphroditus was Given this mission, he was tasked with going to Rome, not only to bring financial support to Paul, but also to take care of Paul, to encourage him while he's in prison, to ease Paul's burdens and his suffering. And yet by the time Epaphroditus gets there, he's barely alive from this near-fatal illness. Who ends up taking care of who? Paul is the one who has to care for Epaphroditus. Paul isn't relieved of his burdens. Instead, he has to take on the burdens of Epaphroditus' illness and his situation upon himself. And so, friends, just from a purely human standpoint, you could say in one sense, Epaphroditus failed. Just imagine how much shame he might have had, how much guilt he might have had. I went on this mission to make Paul's life easier, and all he ended up doing was just making his life really hard. I caused him so much stress. I caused my church so much stress. I nearly died. I went through all this suffering. I failed to ease Paul's suffering. I just made him suffer even more. And yet, friends, all that being the case, why does Paul commend? Why does he praise Epaphroditus so much in this passage and set him forth as a model for the Philippians and for you and I here today? Well, brothers and sisters, it's because at the end of the day, when Paul saw this broken shell of a man, Epaphroditus, coming to him in Rome, barely alive with this nap, knapsack full of money that the Philippians raised, when Paul saw that, what he truly saw was the heart and the mind of his Savior. See, brothers and sisters, Epaphroditus was a man who encountered the grace of Christ. And because of that, Epaphroditus was now a man who had the mind and the heart of Christ, as Paul talked about in verse 5 of chapter 2. Just as Jesus had given his life to the point of death for Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus was willing to risk his life to the point of death for someone like Paul. See, just as Jesus' obedience brought Jesus to the point of death, Epaphroditus' obedience brought him to the point of the brink of death, for someone like Paul. In other words, the work that Epaphroditus did was valuable in God's eyes. Not because it was this massive success, 
not because it brought hundreds of people to the faith or started this massive or this great revival that lasted for months. But friends, Epaphroditus, what he did was valuable to God because in his suffering and in his sacrifice, even in his failure, he reflected the heart and the mind of Christ, his Savior. And friends, what that means for us in our own lives today is this. In the eyes of God, whether your life is this massive success to the eyes of the world or whether it's a failure, friends, in God's eyes, what, what God values and what's important to him is whether or not we're sharing in, we're expressing and we're reflecting the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we use our time, our resources, and our money, in the way that we live in our relationships with family, friends, and within the church. You know, one thing that, for myself personally, as I just reflect upon just church and life and ministry, and you hear about a lot of these churches and these other pastors who have fallen in the past couple of years, one thing I've been learning through ministry in my own life, trying to internalize, is that the measure of a church's ministry, even the measure of an individual person's ministry, should never be success. It should actually be sacrifice. Because, friends, as much as a great preacher can draw and motivate a crowd of people from the pulpit, as much as a huge church can hold all these great events, or they can double or triple in their attendance or their budget, friends, what we see from the life of Epaphroditus and what his life shows us is that even the most menial, even the most seemingly fruitless sacrifices that we make for God's kingdom, friends, those are the things that reveal how God is at work in our lives. It doesn't mean that things like excellence and success aren't important. Friends, at the very least, what it shows us is that it's not everything in God's eyes. And friends, my prayer for our church here at New Life Prez is that our measure of faithfulness to God as a church would not be measured by all our ministry success that we could potentially have, but that our measure of faithfulness to God as a church would be in displaying the mind of our Savior and the way that we sacrifice, and the way that we lay ourselves down for one another. Because, brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, what we learn from Epaphroditus is that God not only works through our, all our successes and our accomplishments, but he works in weakness. He works even through our failures, insofar as those things reflect the mind and heart of our Savior, Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, as we come to a close, how do we know that this is really true? How do you and I know, especially when we're going through times when we're suffering or when we feel like we failed or in weakness, how can we know that all this is true, that God really does work through suffering, that he really does work in our weakness and even in our failures? How do we know that God works through all those things? Well, friends, we know because is that not the very message of the gospel that we believe? The message that Christ came down from heaven's heights, not in power, but to come in weakness, not to be served, but to live a life of sacrifice, not to be exalted, but to suffer. And according to the world's eyes, friends, Jesus' life was not a massive success in the world's eyes. He failed to procure power for himself and overthrow the Roman government. Jesus failed to rally this legion of devoted followers. Instead, all he could gather to himself were these 12 uneducated men, one who would abandon and betray him and the others who would leave and flee from him in his greatest moment of need. After healing countless lives through miracles and through healing, Jesus failed 
to prevent his own suffering and his own eventual death upon the cross. Friends, three days later, in the greatest display of power that this world has ever seen, God raised him from the dead for the forgiveness of our sins, and he exalted him high above all things so that one day every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And brothers and sisters, as we continue to remember, as we continue to look to that message and to that Savior, just like Timothy did in this passage, just like Epaphroditus did in this passage, friends, I pray that we would continue to grow more and more into the image of Christ, to grow in our humility, to grow in our selflessness, and to have the same mind, the same heart that Christ himself has shown us upon his cross. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you so much for this passage, Lord, that shows us, God, how your grace can work in the lives of anyone in this world. Someone like Timothy, someone like Epaphroditus, who maybe in the world's eyes aren't the greatest or most gifted, but Lord, how your grace can be perfect even in things like their weakness, even in all the things that they, we and they may lack, Lord. We thank you that your grace is for us. And that, Lord, we know that you work even in our weakness, even through suffering and failure. Because, Lord, that is the model that Jesus himself has shown us as he came to this world to suffer, to become weak, and to not seek his own interests, but, Lord, to seek those who are lost, those whom he loves. Lord, I pray that as we continue to reflect upon this message and continue to build our lives around it and not the other desires or goals or interests that we may have in our lives, Would you help us, Lord, to grow more and more into the image of our Savior who has loved us and who has given himself up for us. We thank you and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.